The final week of the book of Ruth. I hope you've enjoyed these last few Sundays as we've looked at this beautiful love story found in the Old Testament. Four short chapters here that you can read in about 15 minutes. If you got your Bible, I want you to go there to the book of Ruth. I'll pray for you before we jump into the message. If you're at one of our physical campuses and you want to take notes, there's a sermon note card or a message note card in the seat back pocket right in front of you. Uh, this is the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then the book of Ruth. And that's important because the book of Ruth was written in the time of Judges when Israel had no king. And Judges 21 verse 25 tells us that in the days of Judges, people did what was ever right in their own eyes. And so when you see the story of Ruth, full of integrity and loyalty and purity, it's even more profound because it was taking place in a time where purity was lacking, integrity was lacking, loyalty was lacking. Four short chapters, but the size of the book doesn't reduce the size of eternal impact. And over the last few weeks, we've looked at chapters one, two, three. Today, we're going to look at chapter four. I want to pray for you, and if you would be so kind to pray for me, I need that today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for meeting us here today through powerful moments of worship. We thank you where you remind us in Scripture that when two or three gather together in your name, you promise to show up. And so we thank you that when you show up, that changes the atmosphere. Uh, because when you show up, everything that we need is available. And I know that your people have walked into a campus or they've clicked this online stream and they're carrying some very heavy things, some very real things. They're going through some challenges and storms of their own maybe. And so we need you, Holy Spirit, to, to meet us right at the point of that need. Because when you do, when you intercept us there, you're able to turn impossible situations into possible situations. You're able to turn hopelessness into hopeful situations. So God, whatever it is, we just invite you, Jesus, to do a work. So I pray that distraction would be removed for the next 40 minutes or so, that we would be attentive and careful to listen to what the Spirit might say. And for me, God, I, I need your anointing on my life. And I, I don't want to just stand up here and, and preach and take up somebody's time. God, I want to be anointed by you to preach the gospel, to preach the good news. I believe you've dropped a word in my heart today. And so I pray, God, that as I present this message with great prayer and preparation, Lord, that, that you would do the work and that your word would never return void and that this word would speak life and speak hope and bring transformational power, not just in the lives of those listening, but in the one who's preaching. I need that transformational power as well. So, Lord, for the work that you're going to do, we give you thanks in advance. We honor you with the highest honor. And we worship you, Jesus, because you alone are worthy of it all. And together the whole church said, amen and amen. Come on now, let's give Jesus the best praise we've got. Come on. Oh, come on, church. Put your hands together for Jesus. There we go. Yeah, you've watched me or heard me talk through this uh, the last couple of Sundays as we kind of give a summary of the book of Ruth. Here's something you need to consider as we conclude this whole a book study and this series. In the book of Ruth, you'll never find one recorded miracle in the book of Ruth. 
Uh, you'll never read about one supernatural angelic visitation. There, there are no divine revelations in the book of Ruth. When you begin in chapter 1 and you walk through chapters 2, 3, and 4, you really learn that this story is a story about, about death. It's a story about loss. It's a story about grief. It's a story about widows. Yet, God in his sovereignty and in his power throughout this entire book, what you will see is the hand of God at work. And God is working in miraculous ways. God is working in supernatural ways. God is working in divine ways. And all of that is in an effort to redeem. On the count of three, somebody shout redeem. One, two, three. Chapter one is full of tragedy. Chapter one is full of death. I got to give you quick synopsis of context here, but you've got Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and their two sons. They move out of their land because of a famine. They move to a foreign land, and then the two sons marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Chapter one to chapter four is about a 10-year period of time, and that's important because I'll show you some things in chapter four of how all of that connects, but within 10 years, Elimelech and both of his sons die. And that leaves Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth as homeless widows. No place to go, no jobs, no income, no food. Naomi then says, all of this is chapter one, Naomi then says to her two daughters in love, she says, you're no longer committed to me. You can go back home. Go back to your homeland, go back to your family. Orpah says, all right, I'm out. But we see surface the loyalty of Ruth. And in Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Ruth says these profound words. She says, don't urge me to leave you. Don't urge me to turn my back on you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. We see loyalty override all of the difficulties of death and tragedy. When you get into chapter 2, now the theme is hope. On the count of three, somebody shout hope. One, two, three. Hope, hope begins to arise out of the ashes of, of death and destruction and difficulty and pain. Now all of a sudden we see, this, see the story move to hope. It's Naomi and it's Ruth. They're hungry. Food and family are the two greatest needs in their life. Those are the two greatest needs in the theme of this story. So Ruth says to Naomi, she says, I'm going to go get a job. I'm going to go out into the fields. Thankfully, it was barley harvest. So she says, I'll go out into the fields if I can find any grain that's been dropped by one of the farmers, I'll pick it up, put it in my basket, and surely we'll consider that to be the favor of God that's on our lives. Well, some would call it coincidence. Others would call it happenstance. We look at it as divine interruption. God allows Ruth to go into the field of a man named Boaz. Boaz just so happens to be one of their closest relatives, which... The Hebrew calls that relationship a kinsman redeemer. She's working in the field. Boaz catches her eye. Ruth catches Boaz's eye. Uh, they have some interaction there. He tells his workers, nobody lay a hand on her. If she's hungry, give her food. If she's thirsty, give her something to drink. And he prays over her in chapter 2, and all of a sudden we begin to see hope. Then you get to chapter number 3, and there is a shift in this whole story. There is a massive turning point. And I told you last week that... 
you know, in your life, in whatever season that you're in, I'm praying that there is a turning point for you. And God is in the business of turning bad things to good. Can I get an amen from somebody that's been there before? It's like, it's what he does really, really well. So now Naomi has a plan. She's going to try to play matchmaker with Ruth and Boaz. Show of hands, how many of you are the matchmaker for your family and friends? Come on, just be honest. You like to play matchmaker. Yeah, so she's like, I'm going to play matchmaker. So she devises this plan. Uh, she believes that it's from God, and she tells Ruth in chapter number three here, she says, oh, Boaz is going to be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. She says, I want you to go to him and approach him, not in a provocative gesture, not in a sexual advance, but let him know that you have a right. If he is the kinsman redeemer, then you have a right to propose yourself to him, basically, to ask him if he wants to take your hand in marriage. I've showed you this definition all three weeks, now the fourth week in the series. In the Old Testament, the kinsman redeemer was a cultural practice of that time. It's not as commonly known today, but if you were considered to be the kinsman redeemer, you had a responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who might be in trouble or the relative who might be in danger or a relative who might be in need. That Hebrew phrase there is goel. So as a kinsman redeemer, you would be designated as one who would deliver the family from the trouble they were in. Uh, you might be the one who was designated to rescue the property or redeem a person. So in chapter 3, this is a turning point because Ruth is reminding Boaz that he is her kinsman redeemer. Now, if you stop your reading in chapter 3, and if you've not read the entire story, there's a little bit of a cliffhanger here. I don't know if you've ever seen any good movies that leave you like wanting a little bit more. You know that they're setting you up for a sequel. Well, thankfully, this sequel happens in chapter number four. But if you stop at chapter number three, you see that there's a little bit of a cliffhanger. So Ruth goes to Boaz. She says, you're my kinsman redeemer. Will you marry me? Do you love me? Do you accept me? Will you take me just as I am? And Boaz says in verse number 12, he says, it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. So the integrity of Boaz, and again, if you missed last Sunday, go back and listen, all right? But he, the integrity of Boaz is admitting, yes, I am a redeemer, but if God is in this, right? If God is in this relationship, then we're not going to do it our way. We're going to do it God's way. Come on, that'll preach, won't it? And he says, so we're going to put this in God's hands. We're not going to manipulate the will of God, which a lot of us tend to do. We try to get involved in the process of God. We try to play God. And let me tell you this, and you know this to be a fact, when you try to take control of a situation, you always mess it up. Look at somebody say, he's talking about you. Come on, go ahead and tell him he's talking about you. And Boaz says this. Boaz says, remain tonight on the threshing floor. And he says, and in the morning, if this other relative, this other redeemer that is closer than I am, if he's going to redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will marry you. I'll take you as my wife. And he says, lie down here until the morning. And in the final verse of Ruth chapter 3, it's Naomi. And here's the cliffhanger. Naomi says, you got to wait. How many of you know that waiting is so challenging? Come on. We live in a, we live in a culture and in a society where we want things now. We don't want to wait for anything. We don't want to wait in traffic. Come on, somebody testify to that. This is church. Right? We don't want to wait in a doctor's office, especially nowadays people just cough and you don't want to be around them. You know what I mean? Like you want to wait in no doctor's office. We don't want to wait for food. We complain about fast food not being fast enough, right? So we don't want to wait. 
But Naomi says, you've got to wait. And I, I shared this with you last Sunday briefly, but your waiting season is not a wasted season. Your waiting is not punishment. Your waiting is preparation. You're going to help me preach that or what? Come on now. So she says, you've got, you've got to wait. And if you stop in chapter three, you're like, what's going to happen next? And then you get to chapter four. Man, and God just put this thought in my heart in preparation of our conversation today. I encourage you to take notes. I've got like 82 passages of scripture I'm going to read to you today. You're going to be here all day long. It's going to be the best day of your life. Come on. You're going to love it. But watch this. Here's hit the three people are clapping. And all three are family. God bless you. Thank you. <laughs> but watch this. Here's chapter four. Watch this. And I love this so much. Chapter four shows this. That when God writes the last chapter of your life, it always ends well. When you stay faithful, when you stay committed, no matter what happens in chapter one of your life or chapter two of your life or chapter three of your life, you serve a God that when you give him the pen, come on, and you allow him to be the author of your life, the last chapter will always end well when you let God be God. Let me get 150 people that would agree with that truth. Come on. It always ends well when God is allowed to be in control. I'm going to read to you 22 verses. Every verse in Ruth chapter number 4. I'm going to do the same approach in terms of communicating that I did last Sunday. I'm going to what they call exegete the scripture. Uh, maybe not a lot of preaching points today, but we're going to look at every single verse in Ruth chapter 4. Is that all right? All right, let's go. Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1 through 22. Take some notes. It starts with this. So remember, we're coming out of this moment on the threshing floor with Ruth and Boaz. He says, all right, I love you. I think you're beautiful. I am a redeemer, but there's one closer than I am. So I'm going to go talk to him. And if he's going to redeem you, then let it be. But if not, I'll take you as my own. Then Naomi says, okay, we have to wait. And now we pick up right here. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and he sat down there just as the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along. Now the town gate was just a city hall. Uh, the town gate was just the courthouse in that day. This is where most, if not all, of the legal transactions of the day happened. So basically, he's going to the courthouse. He's going to the town hall. There is that closer relative, that other redeemer that Boaz mentions. And I want you to see this. And Boaz says, come over here. On the count of three, everybody say, my friend. One, two, three. My friend. He doesn't even give him a name. And that, that I don't know why that struck me this week, but it did. Uh, it's not that he didn't know his name. It was his relative. Now, you and I, come on, let's be honest. Some of us have problems with remembering people's name. Just raise your hand if that's you. Just be honest. I, 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 the older I get, the, the more I struggle with that. But I think God's given me a little bit of a gift to remember people's names. My wife can remember anybody's faces. She cannot remember one person's name. The other day, we're getting ready to celebrate 17 years. She asked me, now, remind me your name again. <laughs> Kimberly just struggles with remembering people's names. And you know, when you see someone coming that you think, I should know them, but I don't know them, your mind is going 90 to nothing. And if anybody's near you, you're asking them under your breath, what's their name? Come on, tell me what their name is. Come on. How many of you have done that before? And then when they get there, here's the moment you say, hey, pal, <laughs> come on. Hey, bud, what's going on, buddy? Hey, buddy, big team. Come on, how you doing, friend? Uh, but 
But Boaz doesn't forget his name. It's a Hebrew idiom here, meaning it's insignificant. It's insignificant. So we're going to call this guy Mr. No Name. Mr. No Name. So Mr. No Name comes and he sits down. And so he went and he sat over down beside him. And check out verse number two. And Boaz brought with him ten of the elders. He brought ten of the elders to the town. And he told these elders, he said, I want you to sit here. And they did what he said. Now, two things about these elders. First is he brought them as witnesses. Even today, on September the 26th of 2021, or whenever you're watching this archived message, uh, it requires a witness to be married, right? It requires a witness for most legal transactions. In many cases, you need a a notary public or whatever to sign off on that, that document there. You need a witness. So he brought 10 elders with him, Uh, to serve as witnesses. But here's what is interesting, and write this down, it's not on the TV, but watch this. He brought one witness for every year of pain that Ruth walked through. It was a representation, and this happens again in chapter number four. It is a reminder that God was with her every year. Through every pain, through every difficulty, through every challenge. And he says, he says, we're going, he could have brought one. He could have brought three. It's interesting, though. He hand-selected ten elders to represent the ten years of burdenness, of fruitlessness, of famine, of tragedy. Isn't that powerful? And then he said to the Redeemer, watch what he does. Now, Boaz is crafty in his approach. He's strategic with what he does. Let me read to you a couple of verses here. So Boaz says to Mr. No Name, he says, all right, we've got Naomi, and Naomi has come back from Moab, and she's selling some property that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So he's introducing this conversation by putting it on a golden platter, because any, any great businessman, even today, they love the idea of, of property because of the value. But in this day, watch this, property was everything. Property meant everything. So he starts by saying, look, Naomi's come home. Her husband has died, and she's got a piece of property. And then he says in verse number four, he says, I thought that I should bring this matter to your attention. And I might suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of these elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. And then he says this, watch. He says, but if you will not... Tell me so that I will know. For no one has, and this is important, I should have highlighted right and yellow, but no one has the right to do it except you. And I am next in line. And then watch what Mr. No Name says. He says, I will redeem it. Don't miss that. A couple of things are important here. Number one, Boaz is setting him up. He wants him to see that there's great value in Naomi and in the property. But notice as he mentions Naomi, her name, and not Ruth. Why? Naomi's old. Naomi is past the, the age of, of childbearing. So what he's saying to Mr. No Name is, this is there's, there's no risk involved. You get Naomi, she can't have kids. Um, so that means there, there is no one after, you know, you in this marriage. So you get all of the inheritance, all of the property. Plus you get the value of the property. He's like, come on, man, this is a great deal. And so Mr. No Name is like, Well, yeah, I mean, I'll redeem it. Now, it is very likely, and I want you to see this, it is very likely that both Naomi and Ruth 
snuck into the crowd of onlookers and onlisteners. So could you imagine in that moment when they hear Mr. No Name in front of all of these witnesses profess, I will redeem it. I believe that their, their stomach was in a knot. Fear gripped them. Naomi's like, yeah, but we had this plan, and God was in this plan, and this guy, Mr. No Name, he ain't supposed to be in the plan. I mean, they're terrified, overwhelmed with anxiety. And can you imagine if the story ended there? Have you ever watched a really good movie that had a terrible ending? And at the end of your life, how many of you have said this? I wasted my flipping time. It was a good movie with a bad end. This would be a terrible ending. But the story doesn't end there. Watch what Boaz says. This guy, come on, he's got game, y'all. Come on, ladies. I'm telling you right now, he's got game. He sets it up. He puts it on a golden platter. He talks about the property. And then he talks about Naomi. And look, she's older and she can't have children. And then the guy's like, well, yeah, all of this makes sense to me. And then, and then Boaz says, hey, just... One small little detail. Not a big deal. Shouldn't change anything with your decision. But on the day that you buy land from Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth. And Ruth is young. And Ruth wants a child. You know, baby Ruth. <laughs> you don't get that kind of content anywhere, church. Come on, only here. I go to her. He says, you know, she wants, she's going, she wants a baby. And... And as her redeemer, let's unpack this verse. As her redeemer, not only do you have to take Naomi, not only do you get the land, but you have to get Ruth, and then you have to get Ruth pregnant, and it must be a son, so who knows how long that might take. And then once you get a son, that son when he grows up, by the way, just small details here, he actually gets it all. Like he, he gets all of it. Because he, be, he would actually then become the kinsman redeemer. And all of a sudden, this, this Mr. No-Name, right? This Mr. No-Name, he says, then I can't redeem it. <laughs> He's like, you know what? This got crazy fast. This is like Jerry Springer on me. You know, I can't, like, I, I can't redeem this. It might endanger my estate. And then watch what he says. He says, you redeem it. You redeem it. You take the responsibility because I can't do it. Um, one theologian talked about how the closest redeemer, Mr. No Name, he had three, three things for him. He had the right to redeem Naomi and Ruth, and he had the resolve, I'm sorry, the resources to redeem Naomi and Ruth, but he lacked the resolve. And I want to say this to you. This is a story about, and we'll show you this throughout the remaining few minutes here, but this is a story really about God's love for you. But you can't help overlook the love story that's happening. I mean, Boaz loves Ruth, and, and Ruth loves Boaz, and, you know, we get a little nervous because there's this other guy, you know, Hallmark. <laughs> right, there's always another guy, Mr. No Name's in plaid. He's got a beard. He's got a little dog. He's probably a single dad with a child. Runs a small business in his hometown. Hallmark. But what Boaz had was this. Boaz had now the right, because he said, I can't do it, you redeem it. Boaz had the resources, but he also had the resolve. And I want to say this to you, especially to the ladies, but if you're in the season of dating, 
Like in the season of relationships and maybe engagement and one day a proposal and one day marriage. I just want to say something to you as your pastor and somebody that loves you. If, if you are into someone and that is not reciprocated, can you just leave? Because marriage, honey, ain't going to fix that. Marriage is a magnifier of the problems. Marriage doesn't fix the problems. So if you're always calling him, but he ain't calling you, okay, right? Um, if you're always texting him, but he don't ever text you back. If every time you're together, you know, he's distracted by something else and, you know, you're, you're insignificant to him. Let me just give you some advice. Run. Leak. Can I get somebody to help me preach for a minute? Come on, like. I, this is my advice to you and say, my pastor wanted me to tell you, don't let the door hit you with a good Lord split you. Like, you gone, bro. Hit the road, Jack, and don't you come. No more. No more. Right? So let me give you a little relational advice here to all the ladies, especially ladies here, but to all the ladies that are in such a hurry to find a boyfriend. You're in such a hurry, you know, to, to, to get married. There is the spirit of Anita. You know what that is, right? I need a man. Come on now. Like, I, like I need a man in my life. I need it. Okay, to all of you that you just like, oh, Lord, and you go from, you change relationships. Like, I change socks like three times a week. Come on now, right? Like, you're in this season. You're just like, I got to have somebody. I need somebody. Let me give you some biblical advice, and some of you have heard this before. Ruth patiently waited for her mate Boaz. So while you're waiting on your Boaz, don't settle for any of his relatives. Broke ass. Poaz, come on now, lying ass, cheating ass, dumb ass, come on, y'all gonna help me today or what? Married ass, cheap ass, especially locked up ass, don't hang out with him, come on now. Good for nothing ass, lazy ass, come on. And especially his third cousin twice removed, beating your ass, don't be, no, no, no. Wait on your Boaz and make sure he loves and respects your ass, come on now. I'm just trying to help you. This is free. We're just talking. It's all right. It's church. Some people are like, I can't believe he would say, it. but it's the truth. Always in a hurry. This is why nobody signs up for marriage counseling with Pastor JC. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you married Brogas. Time to move on, you know. Oh, just slow down. Wait on the Lord. Ladies, God has your Boaz. Just wait. Come on and give Jesus some thanks. Come on. All right. Verse 7. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption of transfer of property to become final, watch this. One party would take off their sandal and they would give it to the other. And, and the verse explains this whole transaction. It was just... It was, a, it was a method of legalizing the deal. Um, and so then you see in the next verse that this is what they did. Like they took off their sandal and said, buy it yourself. And so that was the transaction. This, this method evolved into handshakes. Now, this is a little bit before my time, but I remember even as a kid watching my father make many deals by just the integrity of a handshake. How many of you know what I'm talking about? And that, that was the integrity of this moment. I'm going to take off my sandal, and it is final. Now we've had to move into lawyers and contracts because people are shady, y'all. Just be careful who you're trading sandals with. 
So he removes his sandal as a method of legalizing the transaction. And watch verse number nine here. And then Boaz announced to the elders, all 10 of them and all of the people, today you are my witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all of the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. Right, that's the two sons. And then he says this in verse 10. And I want you to see this. He says, and I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, I love that. He is reminding everybody in the crowd of her testimony and her past. And he says, I've acquired Ruth, the Moabite, and I've taken her as my wife. Ruth, chapter one, verse number four. She's known as a Moabite woman. Ruth, chapter two, verse number 10. She's called a foreigner. Ruth chapter 2, verse number 13, she's called a slave. Ruth chapter 3, verse number 9. Are you listening to what I'm saying? She's called a servant. But in Ruth chapter 4, verse number 10, she's called a bride. Only God can promote someone that would go from a Moabite foreigner to the wife of a guardian redeemer. Are you seeing this? Stop trying to stop living in self-promotion and let God promote you. God is the one that can elevate you from the lowest of lows and bring you to the highest of highs. I know that you're waiting on the promotion and I know you're living in root chapter one, but if you'll just hang on and you let God write the end of your story, the end of your chapter, God will promote you to high places. Come on. God will open up doors that no man can shut. God will make a way where there seems to be no way. Is anybody hear what I'm trying to say? Come on. He says, she was a Moabite, but now she's my woman. Woo. She was a foreigner, a servant, and a slave. But now, now I am her man. And I'm going to take care of mines. Come on, somebody. Verse number 11, watch this. Then the elders, I love this. The elders and all of the people at the gate, they start shouting. They start cheering. It's what we do at weddings. At the end, when the officiant says, I now pronounce you husband and wife, you may kiss your bride. And the married couple then walks down the aisle back into reality and everyone is cheering and celebrating and that's what the crowd is doing they're overwhelmed with excitement and watch what they say somebody in the crowd shouts out this prayer somebody in the crowd shouts out a blessing may the lord make the woman who is coming into your home like rachel and leah what is the emphasis there uh, rachel and leah were jacob's wives but Jacob loved Rachel. He loved Rachel. You have to read the story because the father-in-law got in the middle and just set him up. And I know about shady father-in-laws. I'm telling you right now, I know all about them. Just a joke. Jacob loved Rachel, but it was Leah that made him fruitful. So the emphasis on the prayer, the emphasis on the blessing is, may you experience love like the love of Rachel, but fruitfulness like that of Leah. And between these two women, they had 12 sons, which came the 12 tribes. Do you see that? The whole family of Israel. And watch, and may you, verse number 11, may you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. 
Two kings born in Bethlehem, King David, King Jesus. You'll see that play out here in just a moment. And they keep shouting out through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman. May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Tamar, another non-Israelite. Read her bizarre story in Genesis chapter 38. How she's forced to have incest with her father-in-law. She becomes pregnant. Why would they put Tamar in the story? Because... Even in the most ungodly situations, God can reveal purpose and destiny and identity and his glory can be revealed. And the prayer, the blessing that's shouted is, may you feel love like the love of Rachel. May you be fruitful like that of Leah. And may you find purpose like that of Tamar. And then you get to verse number 13. You got a few more minutes? Sure you do. The doors are locked. Watch this. <laughs> so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. You know what I find interesting? Let me just share something with you. This one verse, let me read it again. Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, he made love to her, then the Lord enabled her to conceive, she gave birth to a son. Here's what I find so interesting. It took an entire chapter, Ruth chapter number one, to explain to us about the pain of death. A whole chapter. Then it took a whole chapter in Ruth chapter 2 to talk to us about the famine and the need for food and working in a field. And then it took an entire chapter, Ruth chapter 3, to explain the process of the threshing floor and the proposal that happened there. But then in one verse, you get a wedding and a baby shower. How? Why? Why did it take chapter after chapter after chapter to explain everything that was happening? And then in a moment, in one verse, you get a wedding and you get a baby. This is what I feel happens in my life. And maybe, maybe you can testify to this all throughout my life. I always feel like God is working slowly. And then favor happens all at once. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's like, God, in the middle of this chapter, are you even there? Are you even moving? Are you even listening? Do you even care? Do you see my hurt? Do you see my pain? Do you know my tragedy? Do you know my storm? God, do you remember me? Am I Mr. No Name to you? Are you there? God is working slowly. I think of the story of, 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 uh, of Joseph and the story of Esther in the Old Testament and how God worked slowly, chapter by chapter by chapter, and then bam, all at once, doors opened and favor fell. Let me tell you, while we're busy playing checkers with our life, God is playing chess. Oh, God is playing chess. And listen to me. I don't know who this is for, but every move, every decision that God makes on your behalf is both sovereign and strategic. And I know you can't see the big picture. 
I know we get our minds and our eyes wrapped on the moment and what's happening now, but even when we can't see it, come on church, God is behind the scenes manipulating the circumstances, moving in his sovereignty because he is playing chess with your life. I don't know what you're waiting on. And I know it feels like things are moving real slow, but you just stay faithful. And one day you'll wake up and you'll be living in the land of favor. Come on now. You'll be living in blessing and abundance. Come on and give Jesus some praise. Come on. Come on. Let's put our hands together here. Five seconds. Come on. Woo. I know you think that God doesn't know what he's doing, but God knows. God knows. Isaiah talks about how his ways aren't like our ways and his thoughts aren't like our thoughts. And that's a good thing. Come on, in the church world, we quote Jeremiah 29, 11, So accept it, receive it. God's got a plan for you. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you, but to give you hope and to give you future. Hang in there. You're trying to play checkers. God's playing checkers. That'll preach today, I'm telling you. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. And when he made love to her, and I highlighted this, this is the same verse, but watch. The Lord enabled her to conceive. In the background of this whole story, Ruth 1, 2, 3, 4, in the background is God moving. But there are only two verses in this entire story that bring God to the foreground and highlight something significant that he had done. Only two times. Remind me, what are the greatest needs of Naomi and Ruth? Food and family. Two times the Lord is mentioned as coming to the foreground of this story and making his provision known. Ruth chapter 1, verse number 6, the Bible says that it was the Lord that provided food for the people, Ruth 1, 6. And then Ruth 4, verse 13. It was the Lord that gave her family. Listen to me. I don't know who needs to hear this, but God will always provide what you need. It's what he does. It's who he is. He may not always give you what you want. Anybody know that? But he will always give you what you need. And then in verse number 14, you got a couple more verses here. Now all of the attention shifts. It's the wedding and the baby shower, but now it's not on Ruth and Boaz. The attention goes back to who? Naomi. And they say to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your own age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons. In the Bible, the number seven means perfection or completion. That this one act of God's sovereignty has, sovereignty has completed you. And then watch. And then Naomi takes the child and holds the baby in her arms. Do you see this? Chapter 4 shows us what? Chapter 4 shows us that when God writes the last chapter of your life, it will always end well. I want you to see uh, the, the, the victory in this story. Chapter 1 begins with death and tragedy. Chapter 4, what? Ends with life 
and joy. I know for many of you, it feels like your life is all about loss, grief, pain, death, tragedy, trial, setback, etc. Let God be the author of your story. And I'm telling you, I promise you in the authority of the name of Jesus, and I prophesied this over you, over your family, over your marriage, over your health, over your children. Does anybody receive that? Come on. That what the enemy meant to kill, God will bring new life. That what the enemy meant for destruction, God will bring great joy. That is our Lord. Come on, and that's what he does. It starts off with pain, but it ends with life and joy. And if you're in the movie theater and you're watching this movie, there's not a dry eye in the room. It ends with Naomi holding her grandbaby in her arms. And you get up from your seat in the movie theater, you pick up your popcorn and your Coke, and you're walking out of that movie theater and the big orchestra is playing and the credits begin to roll on the screen and you think, what a love story. And you get to the hallway of that theater and you're about to walk out of the doors because the movie is over. And maybe this has happened in real life for you that the credits are rolling and then something comes back on the screen. You know what I'm talking about? So in this movie, in this story, you're walking out of the theater and then all of a sudden something comes back on the screen and it's verses 17 through 22. And this is seemingly insignificant genealogy. It's literally the credits of who was in the story. And watch what the Bible says. Watch verse 17. Then the women living there said, Naomi has a son. They're going to name him Obed. Obed will be the father of Jesse. And Jesse will be the father of what? Through this relationship, God's redeeming love brought to them the most famous king in all of Israel? Watch verse 18. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amenadab. Amenadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. And this is what I told you last Sunday, and it stands true today, and it will stand true for every message that I preach and every Bible story that you read. Every story in the Bible is always pointing to a greater story always pointing to a greater story and listen to me in the couple of minutes we have left Ruth chapter 4 verse 22 pardon the grammar but that ain't the end of the story Matthew chapter 1 go there in your Bible beginning in verse number 1 this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah the son of David the son of Abraham Abraham was the father of Isaac Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and all of his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, twins, whose mother was Tamar. Hello. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amenadab, Amenadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of, per, of, of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David. Are you seeing this? 
David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Come on and give Jesus the highest praise. Woo! There is a greater story. There is a redeeming love. One more minute, watch. So here's the greater story. Jesus. Jesus is our great redeemer. And he has redeemed us by paying the price for our salvation. Ruth 4.22 isn't the end of the story, it's the beginning. It's the way that God gives us his son Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that he might save the world, redeem the world. 1 Peter 1, verse number 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things like money, silver, or gold. That's not how you were redeemed. You weren't redeemed from your old empty life by money. No, you were bought with the blood of the Lamb. The precious blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross at Calvary. Ephesians 1 says it this way. In him we have what? Come on, say it. In him we got what? Through his blood, through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, Jesus. Oh, I'm running out of time, and I apologize, but I don't want you to miss this. In that whole genealogy of Matthew 1, 16 verses, there are five women that were named. Five women. And in a time where women weren't listed in genealogy reports, by the way, Tamar who was forced to have incest with her father-in-law, Genesis 38. Rahab, who was a prostitute. Ruth, who was a Moabite. Bathsheba, who had an adulterous affair with David. And then Mary, a godly, virtuous teenage girl. Four of the five women listed in this genealogy had scandalous testimonies. Now, don't get me wrong. There were a lot of men that we read that they had issues too. Come on, they got testimonies and stuff. But it makes me ask this question. Why would God allow these women to be a part of that grand story? Why would God let a prostitute, an adulterer, one that had incest in her family, why would God allow them to be in the story? 
I'm going to tell you why. It's the same reason you and I are allowed to be in the story. It's the word redemption. Redemption means this, to repair, to restore. Redemption means to buy back. It means to atone for. Redemption means that we are free from the consequences of sin. Can I tell you this? Listen to me. No matter your past, God is our great redeemer through Jesus Christ, his son. And in a moment, you can say, okay, I've got a right to ask you to accept me just as I am. And when you come to him with repentance, you receive redemption. You receive grace. You receive mercy. The enemy would love to beat you down with all of the bad things you've done and why God will never love you, why God will never accept you. Come on. If God can save somebody like JC, God can save anybody. Can you testify to that about your own life? There is redeeming love just for you. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the story of Ruth. We're in the story. God put us in the story. So the question is this. Have you accepted God's redeeming love? Have you experienced God's redeeming love? If you haven't, don't leave here today without experiencing his grace and his mercy. And be invited into the greatest story of all time. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Campus pastors are coming. Nobody leave. And I give you an opportunity to pray here. We're going to transition the live stream. Live stream. Our campus pastors will take over. Reflect on this question in this moment of transition. Have you accepted and experienced God's redeeming love?